Best painting in the world is. Oh wow, pretty good, Mona Lisa. Impressed. There she is. Italian artist Leonardo da Vinci in 1503, and then probably continuing on as he normally did, tinkering with his painting after that. Uh, so who knows when he actually finished it, but this is the most visited, most studied, most sung about, and most parodied art or piece of artwork in, in the world. Um, it's rightfully earned the description of a masterpiece and it currently resides in the Louvre Museum in France, and really it's a, a monument of Western culture. Um, very significant painting, uh, just representing so much, the Renaissance, um, all the cultural development that took place in Italy, yada, 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 lots of important things can be tied back to this, and so you can't really, you can't put a price tag on this. I think when they transported it not too long ago, they put an insurance policy of $100 million on the painting. Um, and then it's like, well, what's the point? I mean, you, you obviously can't replace it. With something like that, with, with something this important to our culture, to Western culture, to the history of the world, really, um, it may surprise you to know that there have been frequent attempts at vandalism of the Mona Lisa. Um, in 1956, uh, the painting was moved to another museum in southern France, and someone doused the lower half of the painting with acid to try to vandalize it. And that same year, it was on display, and a man from Bolivia was visiting and threw a rock at the painting and chipped it. And they've repaired the chip that was in it uh, after that. But once that happened, they decided to put the painting at the museum, the Louvre there in, in France, decided to put it behind bulletproof glass to try to protect it. And I've actually got a picture of, of where it resides today. You can see the, they keep people back from it and it's got bulletproof glass around it. But when they did that, that didn't even stop people from trying to get at this thing. In 1974, um, a handicapped woman was visiting the Louvre and she was upset because of the lack of handicap accessible uh, facilities there. And so she spray painted the glass around the picture to try to, to try to get at it and show her displeasure, maybe do some damage to it. And then in 2009, a Russian woman was visiting and she was upset with the nation of France because she had been denied French citizenship. And so she threw a coffee mug, which she bought in the gift shop at the museum. She threw it at the, the painting, um, trying to vandalize it. That seems crazy to attempt to vandalize something as priceless as a da Vinci painting, as the Mona Lisa. But this morning, I want you to think of the introduction of sin into the world, into creation, as an act of vandalism, of God's masterpiece, of God's good gift. One author described the, the parasite, the vandalism that is sin, and its relationship to the world this way. He said this, I'll read it to you if you, can't, if you can't see it up there. In the biblical worldview, even when sin is devastatingly familiar, it is never normal. It is alien. It doesn't belong in God's world. 
Sin is always a departure from the norm and is assessed accordingly. Sin is deviant and perverse and injustice or iniquity or ingratitude. Sin in the Exodus literature is disorder and disobedience. Sin is faithlessness, lawlessness, godlessness. Sin is both the overstepping of a line and a failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a missing of the mark, a spoiling of goods, a staining of garments, a hitch in one's gait, a wandering from the path, a fragmenting of the whole. Sin is what culpably disturbs shalom. Sinful human life is a caricature of proper human life. Sin is vandalism of God's good world. And I've tried throughout this series on Genesis 1 to 3, I've tried, I've labored to try to show you the magnificence of God's creation. He created the world as a good and as a precious gift to us for his glory. And sin is a spoiling of that which is good. Now imagine what it would have been like in 1956 when that acid was dumped on the lower half of the Mona Lisa. Imagine what it would have been like to be an art collector or someone who appreciates fine art and to approach that painting immediately after the acid had been dumped on it. I mean, imagine how devastating that would be to view the painting like that. It had been forever altered. It will never be the same. You cannot repair it. Da Vinci's not coming back and painting new marks on that painting and fixing it up. And I feel like in Genesis chapter 3, as we're getting into this and we're seeing the fall of Adam and Eve in the first eight verses, we're at the point where acid has just been dumped on God's good world. It's been altered. It's been changed. And this week and next week, we're going to look at the rest of this chapter, chapter 3, and we're going to see just exactly how life, God's good creation, has been altered. But you can never get back the Mona Lisa to where it originally was, but the, the glorious thing about this story is that God is not going to leave his creation permanently damaged. He's not that type of God. He loves what he has made, and he loves the people that he has created. And so this is the beginning, and we're going to see hints of this in this story, but this is the beginning of a restoration project where God is going to make everything right. He's going to fix what is wrong, and he promises that his masterpiece will be what it should be. And so in Genesis 3, 8 through 24, again, we're going to look at half of it this week, half of it next week. We're going to see the results of the vandalism that has occurred. And specifically, we're going to see three outcomes of the first sin. And these outcomes dramatically shape life today. We can't get away from it. So three outcomes of the first sin that dramatically shape life today. And the first one of these is alienation in verses 8 through 13. So last week, we looked at verses three or verses one through eight, and we began to see after, in verse six, they eat the fruit, and then we began to see the consequences that came from their eating of the fruit. Look at verses seven and eight. Let me read those again to sort of refresh your memory as to where we are. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve were used to walking in the garden in the cool of the day, in the evening of the day. A slight breeze was blowing, very enjoyable time there. They were used to walking with God and enjoying his presence in the garden. But now, after they eat this fruit, they rush to hide. They run away from his presence. They no longer want to be near him. And you can see the immediate change that happens in their relationship with God. Instead of fellowship and enjoyment of God's presence, there's alienation. They want to get away from him. There's a disruption in the relationship between God and man. But that vertical disruption in the relationship between God and man, we're going to see in this passage, will flow out into all sorts of horizontal disruptions and alienations. It's going to exceed far beyond or extend far beyond the relationship between God and man. And it's amazing here, even after this happens and Adam and Eve are trying to hide from God, it's amazing that God is very gracious in how he approaches them and how he deals with them. Look at what he does in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, obviously, God knew exactly where Adam was. He knew where he was hiding. He knew, he knew exactly what had happened. But he, he very gently calls to him to try to draw him out, to try to get him to recognize what he had done and the sinfulness and the rebellion of what he had done. This question here by God is an act of grace in and of itself. It's an act of kindness to them. He could have just left Adam and Eve in this circumstance, in this situation. He could have just said, I'm done with you. He could have brought physical death to them at this very moment, but he doesn't. And instead, he graciously seeks them out and tries to draw them out of their hiding and draw confession out of Adam. You'll notice here in verse 9, he specifically calls to Adam. He calls to the man. Why? Because Adam is the covenant head. We've talked about this several times in chapter 2. Adam's the covenant head. He's the one who initially received the commands from God in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And he's the one who chose to rebel. He was with Eve. She was deceived. He chose to abdicate his responsibility, and he chose to rebel against God. And this here... God calling to Adam as the representative, as the covenant head. This is why in Romans 5.13, Paul says that sin came into the world through one man. It's because of Adam's failure, of his rebellion here. And you can see Adam's, the result of that rebellion, his alienation on full display in verse 10. Adam, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Rather than delight in the presence of God, now he experiences fear, he experiences terror in God's presence. And it's amazing because the serpent told them that eating the fruit would be something that was wonderful and would bring all of these benefits to them and they would have this extended, broadened knowledge and it would actually expand their horizons to eat of the fruit and they would become like God. They would be more fully alive at this point. And in reality, what happens here is the knowledge that did come to them was confusing and it was disruptive and it brought guilt. 
It wasn't liberating at all. Instead, it brought shame and a desire to hide from God. And so rather than than admitting to his wrongdoing, verse 10 shows us that Adam tries to give an excuse for what he's done. He doesn't actually answer God's question in some ways. He doesn't deal with his sin. He doesn't confess it. Instead, what he says is he gives an excuse for it. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He doesn't own up to it. He's attempting a cover-up here. God responds in verse 11 with two questions. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now think about how Adam should have answered that first question. Think about the answer to that question. Who told you that you were naked? Who had told Adam that he was naked? Was it Eve? Was it the serpent? Was it God? Well, it was none of those people. It was actually Adam's own conscience that told him that he was naked. It was his own conscience that was convicting him and bringing guilt for the crime that he had committed. And of course, God knows that, and that's why he asks the second question in verse 11. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Because Adam's conscience was convicting him with guilt and with shame, God asks the second question, tries to draw out a confession here. All of the guilt, all of the shame comes because Adam broke God's command. But it's amazing what sin does to us, right? Rather than admitting at this point, God has got his finger on the exact problem here. And rather than admitting and confessing and repenting and owning up to the problem, Adam tries to divert the attention once again. His guilt before God drives him to turn on his bride. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, if you're reading this in context, think about the last words that we have in Genesis right before this that Adam has said about his wife. Chapter 2 and verse 23. When he first sees her, he bursts into a poem praising God and exalting her. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's delighted. He's excited about his new companion, about the gift that God has given. And what a dramatic change we now have in chapter 3 and verse 12. His delight in her has turned to disgust in her. So he blames her because of his guilt. And he also blames God here. And you can see, we talked about this last week, but Eve's foundational understanding of God's goodness and kindness was what the serpent undermined, and that shifted underneath her feet, and she started to doubt God's goodness, and that's exactly what Adam is doing here. Rather than understanding God to be the giver of all good gifts, now he's saying, God, you are the problem, and the gift that you gave to me is no longer good. This is what got me into this circumstance unbelievable change. And you can see the alienation that this brings about between the woman and the man, between God and the man, all 
blame shifting that Adam is doing here. And what's actually going on when we shift the blame or when we attempt to? Well, what's happening is we don't want the sense of guilt or responsibility for our sin. That's what's going on with Adam here. He doesn't want to own it. He doesn't want to acknowledge his sin. And so he doesn't want to acknowledge that he's violated God's law. And so he tries to offload that guilt onto someone else. He tries to push that guilt away. He wants to be justified. He wants to be seen as righteous, as doing the right thing. But he knows he's guilty, and so he tries to push that guilt onto someone else. Blame shifting happens when guilt is present. And we try to deal with it in ungodly ways. And so when he does this, God turns to Eve. And I don't want you to think that God turns to Eve because he's acknowledging that she really is the problem here. Instead, he's turning to Eve to draw her part in this whole thing into the conversation and bringing her sin into the discussion as well. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And she feels the guilt, and she shifts the blame as well. The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's like a mirror that has been shattered into a million different pieces. The harmony that existed between God and human beings, between human beings and one another, and even between human beings and creation has been shattered here by sin. Sin vandalizes our relationships. But thankfully, we're not left in this state forever. God approaches Adam and Eve. He calls to them. He seeks them out. He tries to draw out a confession because he doesn't intend to leave human beings in this alienated state forever. Think about in the New Testament, one of the ways that God describes our salvation is reconciliation. It's a beautiful word. We are reconciled to God. The the guilt is taken care of. It's disposed of. What comes in between our relationship with God is dealt with, and we are brought back into fellowship with him and into his presence. And one of the sweet byproducts of reconciliation with God is reconciliation with one another. We are objectively reconciled to God, and you and I are objectively reconciled to one another. We're placed into the body of Christ together. But we all experience this. We still have sin hanging on. The remnants of our sinful nature are still there, and it tries to pull us back apart and tries to create division and tries to break up the unity that we have in Christ. And that's why when you get to the New Testament, you see such an emphasis on unity within the church, on all of these one another commands, on the church body as a community of believers that come together and experience life together and pursue the Lord together, not individually. All of that's true because the church is the masterpiece of the new creation. The church is to demonstrate to the world what God's new creation looks like. When you are reconciled to God, you are reconciled to one another, and you can live in harmony and unity with one another. How in the church can we live in anger and frustration and bitterness and gossip 
with one another when the goal of our salvation is reconciliation with God and reconciliation with one another. I mean, look look at how Paul describes this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. If we're going to call the world to be reconciled to God, then we ought to pursue unity and harmony and reconciliation with one another in our horizontal relationships. It's a byproduct. So, the first outcome of the vandalism that we're, we're seeing here is alienation, a breaking, a disruption of relationships. It's a vandalism of God's good creation. God created us to live in unity with one another, and sin vandalizes that unity. But when you think about vandalism, what kind of art enthusiast would see someone pouring acid onto the Mona Lisa, would see someone trying to vandalize a masterpiece like this, and would just sort of look on at it and shrug his or her shoulders and go, eh, oh well, not that big of a deal. I was reading several accounts of people who had tried to vandalize pieces of art, whether it's statues or uh, paintings or whatever, and one of the common themes in that is the crowd that's around them would attack the person (laughs) trying to vandalize and trying to do damage to the piece of art. And that's right. That's a just and a right response. And so God cannot see this rebellion against him and this damaging and spoiling of his creation and sit idly by and not do anything about it. He has to respond by bringing judgment and condemnation on the perpetrator, or in this case, the perpetrators of this crime. And that's exactly what he does. And that's our second outcome, condemnation. And we'll start this this week and we'll finish it up next week in verses 14 to 19. So the condemnation that God gives here on the disobedience unfolds in three different parts to each of the three parties involved. So each of the three parties is going to suffer because of his or her role in the vandalism of God's masterpiece of his creation and his purposes for creation. And it's really fascinating as you go through this to see that the judgment or the condemnation on each party actually matches up with the particular sin that the party committed. And so it corresponds, and it's a a right and a just judgment that is brought on each party. God begins with the serpent in verses 14 and 15. Now, before I read this, I just want to make note here. There's no words of hope to the serpent. He receives a curse, and there's nothing of grace in God's judgment on him. But when you get to Adam and Eve, and actually even in his words of judgment on the serpent, you're going to see hope and you're going to see expectation of restoration and reconciliation for the man and the woman. They're made in the image of God and God is going to make things right and they are the recipients of grace even in the midst of judgment here. 
In fact, their grace is going to come by the judgment on the serpent, which is a beautiful thing. But we'll get to all that. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, as you read these two verses, you you have to keep in mind that the temptation was perpetrated by a snake. The snake was the one interacting with Eve. But of course, we talked about behind the snake was the voice of Satan, the father of lies here. And so we're reading about an actual snake, but it's, it's much bigger than just a simple snake that's going on here. The snake was empowered by Satan. So when you read these verses of judgment and of condemnation, don't read these as primarily describing the relationship between women and snakes for all time. Okay? That's, that's not what we're... We're mostly talking about here. I know most women don't like snakes and most men don't either. But that's not really the point of these verses here. We're talking about something much more significant than that. And what we're talking about is overall these verses present a picture of humiliation and defeat for Satan. That's what's going on. He was exalted in pride He denied the very words of God, and now he will be brought low through humiliation and loss. Verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. Now, snakes don't actually eat dust and get their sustenance from dust. That's not what this is talking about. That phrase is used as a metaphor to describe an enemy being defeated. Look at Psalm 72, 9. This is talking, this is David's prayer for Solomon, his son. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust, right? It's a way of saying that they're humbled before him, that he's exalted and victorious over his enemies. And so this whole verse here is metaphorically describing the humiliation and the defeat of the serpent, of Satan. And you can see this in verse 15. It's it's much bigger than just a, a garden snake and a woman here. It goes far beyond that. There's an escalating conflict that is described here. And this escalating conflict will result in the defeat, the final and full defeat of the serpent. But that final and full defeat will only come through injury and suffering to the seed of the woman. Look at verse 15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, talking to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. The word enmity here, I will put enmity, speaks to an ongoing hostility. I mean, this is a war. This is a fight here. And of course, this begins between the woman and the serpent, but it expands far beyond that. It continues on to who? Verse 15, and between your offspring and her offspring. So even in this, there's hope that Eve is going to have descendants here and her line will continue. But there's going to be a 
a constant hostile conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed or the offspring of the woman. I've already used the word seed here instead of the word offspring, and that's a a good translation. But what you need to understand here is this word offspring is singular. So it's not plural, it's singular. And so what what it can mean is, it can mean a collective group of people, like the nation of Israel would be collectively the offspring of the woman, but the king of Israel would be the representative of the nation. And it can be used both ways in scripture. So it's either a collective group, like a team, or the superstar on that team who represents the team as an individual. I think both of those are described here in verse 15. And that's why you see the transition here at the end of verse 15 to the singular he, talking about some future individual. Both are being described here. And so what you've got here is you've got the seed of the woman in conflict against the seed of the serpent. And this is something that's going to go on through the pages of Scripture. And you're going to see this over and over again, this incredible hostility and conflict. Now, in Scripture, when someone is the son of whoever, Adam or Noah, when someone is the offspring of someone, what you're saying there is that they resemble the parent. And so when we're talking here about the offspring of the serpent, we're not talking about baby snakes. What he's talking about here is he's talking about those who represent the goals and the lies of the serpent. And then when he's talking about the seed of the woman, he's talking about those whom God is going to use to advance his purposes and his goals. There's a great battle There's great friction between those two groups. And in Scripture, those who belong to the seed of the serpent, those who represent the goals of the serpent, constantly want to destroy the seed of the woman. You can see this in the very next chapter in Genesis. If you were to turn over and read Genesis chapter 4, you would find the story of Cain and Abel. Cain aligned himself with the pride of the serpent and with the disobedience of the serpent. Abel, in every way in his sacrifice, tried to honor God and trusted in what God had told him. He represented or was the seed of the woman. And what happens? Cain kills Abel. It's a clear attack on God's purposes and on those who represent God's purposes. Cain was driven by anti-God goals and purposes. But the seed of the woman continues. It tells us that Eve has another child, Seth. And then you turn over to Genesis chapter 5, and in Genesis chapter 5, you have the first genealogy in the Bible. Now, I know you like to skip genealogies in your reading because it's lots of names, but why are they there? This genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 starts with who? Adam and goes to Noah. And the reason for that is because of this promise to the offspring of the woman, Moses wants to connect who that offspring is. And so he's connecting you from Adam to Noah here. And it's interesting what Noah's father says about him. Listen to this, Genesis 5, 28 through 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying... 
out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That was a hope that Noah would undo the work of the serpent as the seed of the woman. Lamech was praying and was hoping that Noah would be this one. Of course, we know Noah wasn't this one. As you continue reading in Genesis after the flood, you get to Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, we find the ultimate representation of the seed of the serpent. What happens in Genesis 11? The Tower of Babel. Everyone gathers together and they try to oppose the purposes of God. Listen to Genesis 11 and verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What had God told Adam and Eve to do? To spread out over the whole face of the earth. And here, these people are saying, we don't want to do what God wants us to do. They're collectively coming together, representing the purposes of the serpent. God deals with this attempt in a humorous fashion. And then after this, we find another genealogy. And this genealogy goes from Noah who ended the last genealogy in Genesis 5 and goes from Noah all the way to Abraham. And so you can trace the seed from Adam to Noah to Abraham. And that's why those genealogies are there, because Moses wants you to do that. He wants you to trace who this seed is through whom deliverance will come. And then we find in Genesis chapter 12 that God gives us even more information about the coming victory. It's what he says to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the seed of the woman, the blessing to the earth, the one who's going to accomplish the victory is going to come through Abraham's line. And in fact, God is going to create an entire nation from Abraham that should be a blessing to to all the nations of the earth. And so you go from here, and if you've read Genesis recently, the whole rest of the book of of Genesis is just tracing this line, isn't it? I mean, it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and we don't get all the details about each of their lives, but we get the details that are related to this promise from God and to their seed, to their line. But at each point along the way, amazingly enough, you read about threats to this family line. Things happen from the seed of the serpent to try to undo what God is doing through Abraham's line, through the seed of the woman. Then you get to the book of Exodus. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they end up in Exodus. And you get to the book of Exodus, and now it's not just an individual, but it's the entire nation of Israel that is the seed of the woman, the representative. Look at Exodus 4, 22 to 23, telling Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You can see the conflict there. You have the seed of the serpent in Exodus, Pharaoh, who probably was wearing a crown with a snake on his 
on his crown there, representing the seed of the serpent. And he's trying to eliminate the seed of the woman. He's trying to eliminate Israel. Think about what happens early in Exodus where Pharaoh puts out a decree to kill all the male babies that are born to the Jews. Forced infanticide. Think about the enslavement of the Israelites under Pharaoh. The conflict continues between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And as the Old Testament progresses, it gets more and more specific regarding this individual who will come. He'll come through the line of Abraham in the nation of Israel. And then we learn that he will be a king. He's going to represent the people and he's going to win a great victory on behalf of the people. But as the storyline goes along, God's promises develop, but you also see the seed of the serpent continually trying to tempt God's children, trying to get them to betray their maker, using some of the same lies that he gave to their first parents. The conflict continues, and it's going to come to a head. And both parties will suffer. The language here in verse 15, look at it again, the last two phrases. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent's head will be crushed, but the seed of the woman will be injured in the fight. And so I think you could could say the, the entire Old Testament is built on this promise here. And it really just unfolds and makes clearer this promise and how it will come and how it will advance. The entire Old Testament is the story of God advancing his purposes through the descendants of Adam, Noah, and Abraham, and the seed of the serpent trying to undo God's purposes through those people. From our vantage point, it's wonderful. We have the ability to look back and to see passages like Galatians 4 and hear an echo of Genesis 3 in these words. And we know who the seed of the woman ultimately is. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. It's no accident that Paul inserted that in there. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We have the ability to look back and read the entire Old Testament and Genesis 3.15 as pointing forward and Paul understanding that born of a woman, the seed of the woman, is Jesus Christ. And he has come to accomplish this work. Of course, Adam didn't have that perspective. So as Adam receives this promise here in Genesis 3.15, what would Adam have known at this point? What would he have understood at this point? Well, Adam probably heard this promise with great hope, hope of the defeat of the serpent. And of course, his vision would have been clouded, but he would have known enough to know that God had not abandoned them. He hadn't left them alone. Things would be set right. The masterpiece would be restored. And I think that hope which we'll see him express again further later in this passage, I think that hope would have given him the ability to endure life outside the garden and the results of his sin and the devastation that came through that. I think that hope of Genesis 3.15 would have given him the faith that he needed to turn from his sin and turn and trust the goodness of God. 
Now, as you read through Genesis, Adam lived a really long time after this, didn't he? 900 and some years. And no doubt, life was hard for him outside the garden. But I think he was sustained by the hope of this promise here, that God would set things right, that he would restore his masterpiece. And in reality, it's no different for you and I today. We're living in the midst of a vandalized world that we daily contribute to, the vandalization of it. But we also live under the same promise here. And in fact, we know who the ultimate seed of the woman is, and he has done his work, and we're waiting now for the fruition, the final fullness of that work to be completed. This is why Paul says things like this in Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. As we wait in between, we hope, we anticipate that God will finally and fully fulfill his promise. And that's where our hope lies this coming week. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the hope we have that Jesus Christ has undone the work of Satan and will fully and finally completely make things right. Help us to rejoice in your grace, rejoice in your goodness. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.